You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everyone. It's Matt Brock again. Welcome to another edition of Inside Healthcare, sponsored by NCQA. We welcome you. Uh, We love that we're gathering new listeners. And before we get started with our special guest today, I want to ask each of our listeners to please rate us, give us some stars on your podcast player so that we can move up in uh, search engine optimization so more people can find out about the, uh, the content and the initiatives, the quality improvement initiatives across the healthcare industry uh, like you learn here on Inside Healthcare. Joining me today is Dr. Daniel Alford, a professor of medicine from the Boston University School of Medicine. He's the associate dean of Boston's BU's School of Medicine Office of Continuing Medical Education. He's the director of the Clinical Addiction Research and Education Program, which, or unit, which is CARE for short. And what we're going to talk about today, he is the director of the Safe and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education Program, Scope of Pain Program. So we're going to talk about opioids today, and of course those are often... um, controversial. We all know that there's a crisis in the country uh, in dealing with uh, opioid addiction, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And we're going to talk about, you know, opioids being uh, such a, at a crisis point in this country a little later, and uh, that's the easy place to go. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about how we got here, but uh, what we're really here to talk about is the program that uh, Dr. Alfred leads called Safe and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education Program, which is Scope of Pain. So, Doc, you, when we talked about this initially, first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. When we first talked about this, you know, I thought we were going to talk about the crisis. And we are a little bit, but tangentially, in the sense that uh, you, you said there are like two planes to t- or two topics or two themes to talk about here. And we're working with your program, SCOPE, to disseminate it to all of our uh, PCMH-recognized clinics across the country, um, practices across the country, because we think it's valuable work. So first of all, tell us what it is. What is SCOPE? So SCOPE of Pain is it's an educational program. Um, there's both an online program. It's two hours. It's free. Um, but we also do live meetings. Uh, around the country and and what it is is it's a program to address what have been gaps in education both in medical school and residency training as well as in continuing medical education and those gaps are really around how do we use this particular medication namely opioids in the most safe and effective way that is how do we maximize benefits and minimize harms And I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of controversy. There are people on both ends of the spectrum. That is, nobody should ever get an opioid versus probably not too long ago where people were saying everyone should get an opioid. I don't think anyone is saying that anymore. But the question is, you know, where do you strike the balance? Um, Because these medications are still available. They're still being prescribed. They're legal to prescribe. And they do have some benefit for some individuals. 
Um, but the pendulum had swung way too far into overprescribing, and so we don't want the pendulum to wing, swing too back, too far back, so that we're undertreating people who may benefit from this particular type of medication. So we developed scope of pain. So what is scope of pain? It's it's part of a larger national educational effort um, called the REMS program, or Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy Program, which was initiated by the FDA. And the FDA asks manufacturers of drugs to develop a REMS, Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, when there's risk for that medication. And usually it's one company, one drug, and it, it involves developing patient education and prescriber education. This is slightly different. This involves all of opioids. So it involves all of the companies that manufacture opioids. So now there are 60 plus companies who are funding this education. However, something that else is that's unique about this REMS program is that the education needs to be based on the FDA curricular blueprint. So the FDA developed the blueprint. The 60 plus companies that manufacture these medications fund the education and then the, the, the grants go to continuing education um, providers, people who are accredited um, nationally to offer continuing medical education. And so we, we, got the, one of the, we actually got the first grant in 2012 and had the program up and running in 2013. And since that time we've been continually funded. There are certainly other grantees, people who have developed other programs. And, and we all pretty much do the exact same thing, that is to look at the FDA blueprint, which we're required to cover, and come up with some content around it and develop an educational program that will keep folks interested and engaged and hopefully improve patient outcomes around this whole prescribing of opioids. Is it too early to see those numbers yet? Or, or to see the, I mean, because it's all, it's, thir it's thir well, six years. Yeah. Um, can you see some improvement in that area? Yeah, we can. So, you know, the lowest level of outcome is, you know, how many people have you trained? And we've trained over 160,000 people around the country, both from the online and live training. Um, but looking a little more granular, you know, are we changing practice? And we did publish a paper uh, pretty much, you know, a couple of years after we started the program based on our comparing our pre-assessment, that is assessing folks before they take the training, with the immediate post-training um, outcomes, followed by a two-month survey that we then followed up with. And, and we published in the journal Pain, um, and we showed that there was improvement in both knowledge and knowledge retention, but also in self-reported changes in practice. That is, um, folks were saying that they were changing their practice to be much more in line with guideline-based care. Um, the challenge in all of this is that there is not a great evidence basis for any of this stuff that we're doing. That is, it hasn't been well studied. That is, how do we treat pain? Um, and how do we measure improvement? How do you measure someone's pain? It's so subjective. How do you measure someone's function? It's so subjective. So looking at patient-level outcomes, which I think we'd all like to do, is really quite challenging. But what we did do is we, we got folks to, to respond to this follow-up survey two months after they had taken the course, and we found that they absolutely reported changing their practice. That is, doing more 
like I said, guideline-based practices. What does that mean? It right. means, what are those guidelines? Well, so it means educating patients about the risks and you know, potential but limited benefits to opioids. Um, it means using agreements, that is, having a written agreement where you sit down with the patient and you educate them and you have the patient understand what their responsibilities are and they understand what the prescriber's responsibilities are in terms of refills and monitoring and keeping them safe and having everybody sign it. And having those agreements you know, written at, at kind of a level where everyone can understand it. And then monitoring people, uh, well, actually before, before monitoring, actually doing an assessment beforehand to find out how risky is it for this particular patient to prescribe an opioid. That is, do they have risk factors, such as do they have a history of a substance use disorder? Um, do they have a history of mental illness? Do they have a family history of substance use disorder? And some of those are factors that can increase the risk of somebody misusing that opioid that's being prescribed. They're not absolute contraindications, but they certainly increase the risk and therefore should increase your concern and the patient's concern. So after you've done that risk assessment and you've had that conversation with the patient and you prescribe an opioid, well now it's time to monitor them. So we talk about how do you measure pain, how do you measure function, but also how do you assess for opioid misuse? That is, is the person taking it exactly as prescribed? And those tools include urine drug testing, doing pill counts, and checking state prescription drug monitoring program data just to make sure that everything is in line. Are they perfect tools? No. Are you gonna miss some people who are misusing the opioids? Absolutely. But for the most part, you're going to be able to keep people safe by doing those types of strategies. And they really are consistent with pretty much all of the national guidelines that, that talk to people how you, how you do this in a safe way. So this is something very valuable to the, you know, all, to all clinicians, anybody involved in prescribing or treating. Even if you can't prescribe, if you're an, a nurse assessing, it's good to know these things, correct? You are absolutely right. This has to be a team sport. Um, just like everything else that we do in clinical care that's complicated, we don't ask one of the players, like the provider, the prescriber, to do everything. Right? When, I, um, when I have a patient who has diabetes and I'm going to start some insulin on them, you know, with them, that's complicated. And the patient can die if they do it incorrectly. Um, so I need help. And so I ask my nurses, I ask my pharmacists, I ask my you know, medical assistant, the front desk staff. Everyone needs to be part of the process. So the same thing goes around with pain management and specifically when prescribing opioids. It can't just be about educating the prescriber. The nurses that the prescriber works with, the provider works with, needs, needs education. Um, the entire team needs education. And um, it's not just education about how to do it and check off the boxes and get everything done, but it's also how to treat patients. Because patients with pain are often stigmatized, often feel judged, and certainly patients on opioids especially feel judged. And, you know, they're being asked to leave urine drug tests and bring their pills in for pill counts. And um, you know, this can, if it's done in the kind of incorrect way where it's feeling as if the patient's being judged, um, it can be a real turnoff. But if it's, if it's framed in, in the context of, I need to keep you safe, and these medications carry risk, including overdose, including overdose death. And so the way, the way to keep you safe is to monitor you. And if it's framed in that way, um, it's very... Um, patients can understand it and appreciate it. But if it's, if it's just people saying, you know, you need to leave a urine drug test, um, then patients start to feel less like a patient and more like a suspect or a criminal. 
There is a stigma about these drugs, and uh, there's a stigma because of where we are in the country with the crisis. And I guess I, my question is, as uh, a uh, healthcare sort of civilian, um, my question is, is how did we get here? Programs like this didn't exist before, right? You're right. So you might say, well, how is this possible that we weren't educating the healthcare team about this issue when pain has been around for a long time, it's incredibly common, and we've been prescribing opioids for a very long time. So why wasn't it covered? And my theory is that rarely in a medical school do you find a department or a section of pain or a department or section of addiction. Um, and so nobody was advocating in the curriculum for this content. Okay. So we know that people weren't being trained how to do this well. That's one piece of it. The other piece of it is, you know, there was heavy marketing of these medications as safer and less addicting. And I will say it was certainly not the intent of the pharmaceutical industry to create this problem. It's not a very effective marketing strategy. You can fault them for being slow to respond to problems, but initially the theory was that these medications, the ones that were being marketed, um, have some efficacy, and there was very limited data to support that, but that because they were slow release, that is the onset of action was so gradual that there was less euphoria, less reward, and so they were less addicting pharmacologically, at least that was the the theory, but when people started misusing them by crushing them and breaking them and creating a long acting into a short acting with a very rapid onset, we ran into problems for sure. So there was the kind of lack of knowledge and skill, certainly an over-marketing, and a true emphasis on the under-treatment of pain. We need to be more aggressive in treating pain. And that still exists today. I mean, we, we absolutely have two crises here, right? We've got an opioid um, morbidity mortality crisis. Right. Much of it is, was fueled by the prescription opioid overprescribing, and we still have an undertreatment of pain crisis. It doesn't mean we should be prescribing more opioids. It means we need to be making more treatments available that are non-opioid-based, and we need to find more effective treatments. Having worked in healthcare communications, I can... Um and internal communications, I can see uh, how that could happen because we're so interested in patient, uh, you know, satisfaction. And so when, if anyone who's been in the hospital knows, there's the little smiley faces and which one are you, one to ten. And that, I believe, is probably a good thing and helps educate, but um, I um, I'm think maybe that we went too far to satisfy. Is that... Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, the, the other piece addresses what you just talked about, which was making pain the fifth vital sign. And if you think of the other vital signs like temperature and blood pressure and heart rate and respiratory rate, they are objective measures. Right. And they tell us a lot about what's happening to that person. Pain is not an objective measure. It's subjective. And um, it's harder to know exactly what to do about it. So I don't know that anybody would argue that we shouldn't be asking patients about pain. I think having it as a satisfaction measure is problematic because we don't have any great tools to address pain. And we should try our best, 
But chances are a lot of patients are going to be dissatisfied, not because we ignored the problem, but because we don't have the tools available. And there'll be patients who feel that they should be getting a certain treatment, and that may be opioids. And and if there's pressure to do that and patients are marking us down because they're dissatisfied because they didn't get the opioid, even if we're doing it exactly right, that is, I can't prescribe an opioid for that type of pain or because you're too high risk, so therefore we're doing the right thing, the patient may give us very low scores on satisfaction. Yeah, you're not doing the right thing if I hurt. Right, exactly. Exactly. So I think that was absolutely problematic to have kind of – pain-related questions on the patient satisfaction survey. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't be asking patients about pain. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be empathic in trying to help our patients with their pain. But it's just an imperfect science. And what, patient- some, what some listeners may not understand is that not only is it a question they ask for satisfaction purposes, but uh, certainly in hospitals and uh, you're paid often based on you know, you get bonuses based upon patient satisfaction. Uh, so, um, so you might be more inclined to keep your numbers up and give in to um, that sort of push, that sort of inclination, I guess. No, I agree. And, I, and there's actually another factor that doesn't get talked about very much. And it's a little complex, but, but I, to me, I think it was a major driver in this whole problem because how did patients get on such high-dose opioids, right? I mean, how did they get on these megadoses? And my feeling is um, that opioids for chronic pain were usually the last choice. They weren't the first choice. And I can tell you that before this whole crisis, people were not anxious to give patients opioid prescriptions. Um, And so when it's the last choice, and it's one of the medications, one of the few medications for pain— Actually, one of the only, I think it's the only class of medications for pain that does not have an analgesic ceiling effect. That is, let me give you an example. So for ibuprofen, you would never prescribe more than 800 milligrams three times a day. Pharmacologically, it does not make sense to give any more than that. And if a patient, if a patient came to me and said, I want 1,000 milligrams three times a day, I would say, that doesn't make any sense. 800 milligrams three times a day is the maximum benefit that you could potentially get, and we're going to start getting into problems. Opioids, we know from palliative care, end-of-life care, cancer pain. People are dying from, can- you know, from cancer-related illness, and they're dying from pain. That more and more, giving more and more opioid, you still get more and more analgesia, okay? That there is not a ceiling effect to the analgesic properties. So that mindset then went into the kind of chronic, non-cancer-related pain where people are going to live for the next decade, two decades, three decades. You're giving them the last treatment option. They're still in pain. There's no analgesic ceiling effect, so let me give you more. Let's try more. Let's try more. If you can tolerate it, you're not falling asleep on me, I'll give you more, and we'll see more benefit. What we learned was although there is incremental benefit with increasing the dose, there's also an increase in risk and that people start to run into problems. That is, their function becomes less. They start to have problems with their bone health because they become hypogonad. Their you know, hormones go down. Um, and there's an overdose risk. If someone says, you know, my pain isn't working, you know, it's not working so well, let me take an extra dose because they do it all the time with acetaminophen and ibuprofen. Let me take another dose. Um, they could die from an overdose. And so to me, that was a fundamental issue. And still to this day, 
there's no maximum dose. I mean, there are guidelines to say, you know, let's convert whatever opioid they're on to a morphine equivalent and say 90 milligrams of morphine equivalents is a high dose. But pharmacologically, that's not the maximum that you could get analgesia from. So now it's important for us to tell patients, you know, you're on the maximum dose, even though the maximum dose for one patient may be different than the maximum dose for another patient. And really, it's arbitrary. Um, so that, that is a level of complexity in this whole field that we address in scope of pain. That is, we talk to people about how, we talk to the team, the healthcare team, how do you address this complexity around the pharmacological you know, properties of opioids and the risk? Um, and, you know, we try to help people navigate, and we spend a lot of time talking about communication. How do you actually say this to your patient? What do you say when the patient says, yeah, yeah, but I need opioids, or can't you give me a little bit more, or can't you give me enough until I find someone else who's willing to prescribe? We talk to our learners about, well, what, how do you respond to that? How do you actually say that? Because this can be very uncomfortable. You know, we're running out of time here, and I, I want to ask you a couple of other questions. Uh, first of all, if you're a uh, recognized PCMH uh, within CQA, you certainly should check out our uh, education uh, section of our website at www.ncqa.org and find out how you can uh, participate in this education and uh, become a part of the solution as opposed to perhaps being part of the problem. Um, and I believe there are education credits for it, continuing education credits for it, so um, it is valuable to you in your career as well. But Doc, I want to ask you a couple of questions about, uh, about the crisis. And first of all, you know, you're talking about we have to assess pain, we have to talk to our patients, we have to communicate to them about what's right. Uh, you're an expert in this. Are, is there research or are they trying to find new drugs that do sort of, you know, help the pain but leave out the addiction? And yeah, there, there's a lot of work being done now on developing new treatments, studying current treatments, um, looking at combination treatments, and hopefully those, you know, will show something positive and they'll become available for our patients. And scope of pain, we do talk about multidimensional, multimodal care, realizing, you know, with a degree of sensitivity that it's hard to access some of these treatments for our patients that do already have some research, some evidence supporting them, like acupuncture, like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, for example. And so um, we do spend a fair amount of time talking about that, but you're right. The, there's a lot of interest both from industry but also from our government to, um, to look at alternative treatments that are not going to be addicting or problematic. Um, so I think, you know, yeah. That's encouraging. It is encouraging, but it's going to take some time. It's going to, definitely going to take some time. And so with, you know, with our education, I think we, we, we give some optimism that hopefully there's a light at the end of this tunnel for both our patients and for us so that we can actually treat them well. Um, but we also talk in a realistic way about how do we manage patients with what we have currently where we have, we have treatments, some of which have evidence supporting them, some of which don't, some of which our patients may respond to, some may not. And so we, we talk a lot about individualizing care because, you know, one size is not going to fit all for our patients with chronic pain. And sometimes we actually have no other treatments to offer. And we should 
be empathic and we should be there for our patients. And sometimes I realize that I'm hitting my head against the wall and I'm you know, trying to fix this patient who is not fixable. Um, and I find actually that just being there for them and being supportive and being empathic is something they're not getting anywhere else and that that can be therapeutic in itself. And so I think we have to take a little pressure off ourselves and realize that you know, we can only do so much both in terms of preventing you know, people from becoming addicted, so we should you know, maximize benefit, minimize harm, but also realize that you know, we're only seeing people for 15 minutes in a sterile exam room. Um, what are they doing outside for the rest of their lives? We don't really know, right? We can't really follow our patients around for the day. So you know, we do the best that we can. Hmm. So uh, final question, uh, and really it goes beyond the program. It ta- it's about the crisis. If you had the magic button to um, tackle the crisis, to tackle the level of addiction, everybody at NCQA knows I come from southwest Ohio, where it, you know, Dayton, Ohio is the worst. Cincinnati, Ohio is bad, where addiction has just killed people left and right. So, you know, we're very concerned about it. If you had the magic wand, the magic button to fix it, what would that magic wand be? Yeah, so if a magic wand both for the undertreatment of pain as well as for the opioid use disorder crisis. And for the undertreatment of pain, I would like universal access to multimodal, multidisciplinary pain care. Because we know that multimodal care is better than single modalities. And the problem is it's not being paid for. And the reason, and, and when it's not paid for, it becomes not available, right? I mean, no one, once you start paying for it, they'll start sprouting up. And so I would like everyone to be able to send their patients to a single place where they can get assessed and be offered all the various treatment modalities that are currently available. Um, and through pain clinics, through a, so to speak. Through a pain clinic. Um, you know, the whole specialty of pain medicine is pretty new, which is surprising, again, because Pain has been around for a long time. And so a lot of the pain specialists are very specialized. They're anesthesiologists, and they just do one thing. They do injections. But I'd like my patients to go to one place and be assessed for behavioral medicine, for alternative medicine, for procedures, and medication management. Now, you know, most of our patients with chronic pain do just fine in a primary care setting. But some of our more complex patients need need a more comprehensive approach. The opioid use disorder, we have treatments that are available, that are life-saving, that have a mortality benefit, like buprenorphine, like methadone, like naltrexone. And these need to be more widely available for our patients who have a use disorder. But there's a stigma with those. There's a stigma, but I will just say, and maybe this is my closing remarks, that those patients with an opioid use disorder that I am prescribing a medication that I realize that I am saving their lives, it is the most satisfying thing that I do in practice. And I'm a primary care doctor, and I will say that most of the things that I prescribe for hypertension, for diabetes, for hyperlipidemia, are things that are going to prevent something 20 years from now, like a myocardial infarction or a stroke, but are making people feel worse, right? They have side effects. They feel fine, by the way, and meanwhile, I'm giving them a medication to prevent something, and they feel worse. Thank you very much. Treating an opioid use disorder changes someone's life tomorrow or today even. You know, I mean, you really, the patient comes back and says, you know, I've never felt better. You have saved my life. Now, it's not always that easy. 
and patients, you know, need to kind of regroup and, and figure out what they're going to do for the rest of their life. But you have taken away the craving and the urge to use, and you've, re- you've gotten away, you've gotten, you, you've removed the need to steal and, and do all the bad things that they were doing to support their addiction, and you are treating them with a medication um, that is totally engaging them in care, and you've, you've changed their lives and they re-engage with their families, and they go back to school, and I'm telling you, it, it's really miraculous. So to me, you know, you can stigmatize, you know, addiction all you want, but as a provider, as someone who's providing health care, you know, this really is a chronic disease once it turns into a use disorder, and we have treatment, and we should be offering it to our patients. Here's the final question, or your final word. How, if, if you're not an NCQA, recognize PCMH, how do I get in contact with you to get uh, get this, this education? You just Google scope of pain or go to www.scopeofpain.org and you can, um, you can find us there. That's probably the easiest way. And I, I just want to add that because we've realized that it's it's more than just primary care. It's how do you prescribe opioids post-surgically? How do you do it in the emergency room? How do dentists do it? How do you do it for pediatrics and, and young, you know, adolescents and young adults? We've created modules around all of those things, as well as how do you actually implement this into practice, because uh, it's complex. And so if you go to Scope of Pain, you will not only find our Scope of Pain two-hour curriculum, that's free and offers CME. You will find all of these other satellite uh, programs that have we've created with various forms of funding to address needs that we have identified over the last six, seven years. Thank you very much. Again, Dr. Daniel Alford from Boston University. He's a practicing physician and director of the Scope of Pain program. Thank you for joining us, Doc. And thank you for listening, everyone. We'll be seeing you again, no doubt.